We've already talked briefly about the word Advent this morning. We talked about the Advent wreath that we have here in front of us. What does the word Advent mean? It just means arrival. Uh, Particularly someone that has been promised or a, a royal arrival. And so we're talking about the arrival of the king. Go ahead and turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 1. And uh, what does it mean that the king has come? That's what we're going to take our time looking at over the Advent season this year. So we're going to walk through the, the, the Christmas story from the Gospel of Luke. And as we do that each week, we're just going to kind of focus in on the clues that are there in the story that tell us something about what Jesus the King came to do. What Jesus the King came to do. And so this morning, there are five things that I want to share from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. And so we're going to begin just by reading that passage, Luke 1, 26 to 38, and then we'll just walk through uh, the things that we observe about the arrival of the king and what it means. Luke chapter 1, just follow along with me, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. There's five things I want to point out from this passage this morning that have to do with the arrival of the king. And the first one is this, Jesus saves us from the curse of sin. Jesus saves us from the curse of sin. If you look at verse 31, you'll see that the instruction from the angel is very particular. You shall call his name Jesus. I know that when we were naming our kids, oftentimes it was a process over many days and weeks and hours spent on it. And sometimes there were baby name books involved and trying to choose names and None of that happens for Mary here. The angel comes and says, name's already taken care of. This is coming directly from God. You shall call his name Jesus. Why Jesus? Jesus is the the same as the Old Testament name Joshua. It means deliverer, savior. That's just literally what the name means. And so 
if Jesus is going to be Savior, that obviously raises the question, what do we need saving from? And we need saved from the curse of sin. All the way back in the beginning, in the story of Adam and Eve, in Genesis uh, chapter 2, we hear the instruction that God gives to Adam about the trees of the garden. And so there's all of the choices, there's all of the different things that have been provided except for this one tree God sets aside and says, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So if you disobey, if you sin, then the consequence, the curse that comes with that is death. But along with that, there is a gracious promise that is given. As soon as man falls into that sin, God curses the serpent. Genesis 3.15, we call it the first statement of the gospel. Jesus says to the serpent, he says he, that, that there's going to be this constant war, this battle between the serpent's descendants and the des descendant of Eve. And it says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the serpent is going to damage the heel of the descendant of Eve, meaning it's not a fatal blow. But the descendant of Eve is going to damage the head of the serpent. That's a fatal blow. So that comes, of course, to fulfillment on the cross. Now, that fatal blow has been delivered and the effects of it are ongoing and there's going to come a final day when that, that blow is finalized, when Satan is forever done away with, never to harm God's people again. But the victory was won at the cross. Verse 37 of our passage here in Luke, 30, Luke 1 tells us that nothing is impossible with God. That's a good reminder because as we look at that curse of sin, and we look at the effects of sin on us, we would think it's impossible for us ever to be reconciled with God. There's nothing that we could do to ever earn our way back into God's presence. That separation that comes because of sin is insurmountable as far as we're concerned, because every part of us is touched by sin. You have this, these two things that are that are true at the same time. God can't ignore sin because he's holy and man can't satisfy God's justice because we're totally depraved. It's an impossible situation, but nothing is impossible with God. And so when Jesus comes as savior, he saves us from the curse of sin. That's why the incarnation is necessary. When we say incarnation, that just it's a fancy word for talking about God becoming flesh, becoming a man. And this is why we sing. We just sang this. Why lies he in such mean estate where ox and lamb are feeding? Good Christian fear for sinners here. The silent word is pleading. The word is Jesus. Nails spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the Word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Why was the Word made flesh? He was made flesh so that as man, he could go to the cross. Nails, spear shall pierce him through. In other words, that's that bruising of the heel. 
promised in Genesis 3. But in that act, he deals the death blow to sin and its curse. Jesus is able to be Savior because he is the Word made flesh. The second thing in Luke chapter 1 that I want to point out this morning is that Jesus, the divine Word, is the Word made flesh. Jesus is the divine Word and the Word made flesh. What do I mean by that? This passage in Luke 1 tells how this miraculous thing is going to happen. The Holy Spirit is going to be the one who brings about this miraculous life. The the angel tells Mary, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. When you hear that language, the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary, that should draw our mind all the way back to Genesis, to the creation, where the Spirit of God hovered over the waters and did what? Brought life out of that chaos and death. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings out life. But at the same time, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the divine word and that he's the one who formed the creation. If we were to go back to Genesis, you would read over and over, and God said, let there be. So God the Father speaks and God said, okay, when we speak, what is it that we're doing? I mean, physiologically, where there's air that's kind of coming up from your, you know, your diaphragm is pushing that air out and it comes across your vocal cords and it comes out with sound. There's this wind or this breath that comes out and we communicate with it. And, and so we're able to, to speak to each other. We say words to each other and we're able to communicate. When God speaks... In a way, it's very similar, but when God speaks, things happen. The creation happens. But again, think of the analogy. God doesn't really have a body, but the way that he describes himself, it's God the Father, and and, and just like when we speak, the wind or breath comes out. Wind or breath is the same word as spirit. It is the spirit who carries that along. But the words that we speak, the Bible says that Jesus is the word. He is the communication from the Father. So in the creation, the entire Trinity is involved, but we're told that it's Jesus who forms the creation. Colossians chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 says, and this is in context, it's talking about Jesus. It says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. The very creation is currently held together right now by the word, Jesus, the word of God. He's the one who formed the creation. So if Jesus is the divine word, and now in the Christmas story, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the word has become flesh. The divine word is now Jesus, the living word, a man dwelling on earth with us. He's the one who is going to bring about the new creation. 
just like in Genesis, it's Jesus who forms the original creation. Now the word made flesh forms the new creation. When someone becomes a believer, what do we say? All through the, the New Testament, the language is they are in Christ. They're in him. Second Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Most of our translations say he is a new creation. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is a uh, is not really there in the text. It's just if any man is in Christ, new creation. It's true that he is a new creation, but the bigger point is he's part of the new creation. He now lives in the new creation. He's been brought into the new creation. And that new creation is begun by Jesus, the word made flesh. And it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. John 6, Jesus tells us <clears throat> it is the spirit who gives life. It is the spirit who gives life. And who gives the spirit? Jesus is the one who gives the spirit. So picture after Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus ascends into heaven. He's seated at the throne and he pours out the spirit at Pentecost. That new creation life. Jesus is the one who pours out the spirit and the spirit gives life. So all of our creaturely limits here in this physical creation, our sin ravaged bodies, all of that is overcome by Jesus becoming part of the new creation. He brings us into the new creation. So Jesus is the divine word. He's the word made flesh. And that's why new creation by the spirit is necessary. That's why we sing light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. The damage of this old creation is healed in what Jesus does as he brings us into the new creation, light and life he brings. Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, brings new life to all of his people. The third thing then from Luke chapter one, Jesus defeats Satan, sin, and death. <clears throat> and here I want you to focus on the lineage of Jesus that indicates that he's the king. If you were to look again at Luke chapter 1 and the verses that we read, look at verse 27. Jesus is going to be born into Joseph's family, and it's Joseph who is of the house of David. David is Israel's greatest king. As it goes on, you get down to verse 32. And it says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. So he's going to be the son of God, the king. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So he's associated with David and he's associated with ruling over the house of Jacob. That's kind of pointing our minds back to another Old Testament prophecy. This one that comes from Jacob himself. If you remember the story of Jacob's sons, you remember Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt and he spends most of his life there. And then after a long time, his brothers come down into Egypt because of the famine. They don't recognize him. He provides them with food. Eventually Joseph reveals to them who he is and they're all worried about it, but Joseph forgives them. 
And Joseph tells them to bring their father and household down into Egypt. And so Jacob and the whole house comes down into Egypt to live. And so Jacob finishes his life out in Egypt. And at the end of Jacob's life, he gathers all of his sons together and he blesses them. And the blessing that he gives to his 12 sons tells something about each of them. And when he comes to Judah, Judah is going to be the royal line, the line of kings. Numbers 24 and verse 17, we read, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Judah is prophesied to hold the scepter, Judah's descendants. And so the Judah line is going to be the line of kings, by the way. That's why it was a problem to begin with, right off the bat, that Saul was made king. He wasn't from the tribe of Judah. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. But David is from the tribe of Judah. And so David is in the line of Judah. He's Israel's greatest king. And when we get to this announcement about Jesus, we're told that he's, going, he's a descendant of David. He's from the house of Joseph. So his lineage is David, and he'll rule over the house of Jacob. He's in the line of Judah. So Jesus fulfills this promise. The reason that's important is because of what a king is supposed to do. One of the things a king is supposed to do is he's supposed to represent his people. Now we mentioned David here. He's mentioned by name, by the angel. Think about David's greatest victory. It's his victory over Goliath. David, when he wins this victory over Goliath, he's not even the king yet. He's been anointed as king, but he's not the king yet. He's not the one who should be going out to fight that battle. Saul should be going out because Saul's the king. Saul's the one who represents the people. But Saul fails to do it. And so David steps up. He's been anointed. He'll be the next king, but he's not yet king. And he goes out and he fights the battle against Goliath. And you know the story. If David wins, then all of Israel wins. If David loses, then Israel loses and the Philistines win. That's what happens when the champion goes out to fight on behalf of the people. And of course, David wins and therefore Israel wins. And then later, David is crowned as king. Well, what is it that Jesus is going to do on behalf of his people? Jesus goes to fight the great battle against Satan and sin and death. He goes and fights that battle on the cross. And when Jesus does that, he's been anointed with the Holy Spirit in his baptism, but he's not yet enthroned as king, just like David. And so he's following the model of David in that sense, in this great victory that he wins on behalf of his people. And so Jesus wins the battle against Satan, sin, and death on the cross, and then he ascends and takes the throne. As Paul writes about the resurrection day in 1 Corinthians 15, let me just read you two different things he says from 1 Corinthians 15. First of all, verses 25 and 26, he says that Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Jesus wins the battle at the cross, he's enthroned, now he's ruling and reigning, he's continuing to put all of his enemies under his feet, and the final enemy that he will do that to is death. When will he do that? 
when he reverses death for all of his people. In the resurrection day, when all of his people are given resurrection, eternal life, that is the ultimate defeat of death. And then later, verses 54 to 57, Paul says this, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, because that's talking about our resurrection body, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, and catch this, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How is it that we get victory over Satan, sin, and death? It's through Jesus. How did Israel gain the victory over Goliath and the Philistines? Through the victory of David. How do we gain the victory over Satan, sin, and death? Through the victory of Jesus, our King, who fights the battle on our behalf. And so Christmas is the arrival of the King. So when we sing, as we just did, this, this is Christ the King. Okay? When we say Christ the King, have in mind the words of Jacob, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Jesus is descended from Judah. He is the true King. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Why shepherds? Because Israel's greatest king, David, was a shepherd. Haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. We're celebrating the victory of Jesus the king who came and fought for us. The fourth thing then from Luke chapter 1 is that Jesus is worshipped as the prince of peace. God's promises through Gabriel quiet Mary's fears. The angel says to her, do not be afraid. <clears throat> and not only that, as the story goes on, the same thing is said to the shepherds. Do not be afraid. With Mary, when the angel says this, he says, um, verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. When the same thing is said to the shepherds, it's do not be afraid, for I bring you good tidings, good news of great joy. There's this word of good news or of grace or of favor that comes from God that overcomes the fear. See, it's natural to be afraid when God, or his messenger even, shows up. All through the Old Testament, the presence of God is awful. It's terrifying. Picture Mount Sinai and all of the thunder and lightning. Here, it's an angel who symbolizes the presence of God, who represents God, comes on God's behalf. But the angel even would be terrifying. And the angel says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. When God arrives in the person of Jesus, the message is don't be afraid. In the book of Revelation, if you remember the throne scene in Revelation 4 and 5, um, John is seeing the throne room of God and there's the scroll that has God's plan for human history and, and he weeps because no one is able to open the scroll and it seems like all is lost. In other words, there's not going to be any victory. 
But then the angel says to John, don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John looks and he sees a lamb standing as if slain. And the lamb, the lion, Jesus, is the one who's able to break the seals and open the scroll and to unfold God's purposes for human history. All of the fears, all of the difficulties that we have because of our sin. For instance, think of Adam and Eve, the shame and the guilt that they felt in the garden when God came. They hid. The same is true for us. All of the fears that we have because of our sin, those fears are answered in the arrival of Jesus. Jesus is the one who's able to stop the weeping, to set aside the fear. Why? Because he unfolds, he carries out God's plan for human history. He's the one who solves the problem, the problem of sin. He goes to the cross. He deals with sin. And that brings ultimately peace. And the result of that peace then is worship. You see that in that throne room scene in Revelation 4 and 5. The result is worship. Paul says it this way in Romans 5. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All the fears, the worry, the shame, the guilt that we have because of our sin is answered through Jesus. That brings us peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And so at Christmas we sing, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. We're celebrating that Jesus brings us peace with God. The fifth and final thing from Luke chapter 1 that I want you to see this morning is that Jesus is a merciful healer. Look at verses 32 and 33. Again, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. One of the concepts of what a king is supposed to do is that the king sets things right. The king is the one who is to execute justice. He's to restore things to the way that they're supposed to be. Now, Jesus heals us physically and spiritually. As you look at the stories of the gospel, you see Jesus going around and healing physically all the time. There's a personal healing aspect, but there's also a public healing. There's a a social element to it where he brings the kind of healing that we call justice, setting things right. This may or may not be a helpful picture to you. If you're familiar with the story of the Lord of the Rings, there's a scene that happens after one of the battles and it takes place in, in, in a place called the Houses of Healing. And um, <clears throat> I'm going to read you just two short paragraphs from before Aragorn, the king, appears at the Houses of Healing. And here's what happens. It says, Then an old wife, Eorith, the eldest of the women who served in that house, looking on the fair face of Faramir, wept for all the people loved him. So here's Faramir on the edge of death. And she said, Alas, if he should die, 
Would that there were kings in Gondor, as there were once upon a time, they say. For it is said in old lore, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so the rightful king could ever be known. And Gandalf, who stood by, said, Men may long remember your words, Eorath, for there is hope in them. Maybe a king has indeed returned to Gondor. Or have you not heard the strange tidings that have come to the city? And sure enough, Aragorn, who is the long lost king, the, the king who returns, is able to come and he is able to heal. That's a, a symbol, it's a picture of what a king is ultimately supposed to do. A king is a healer because the king is the one who's supposed to restore. He sets things to rights. Jesus' ministry on earth featured a whole lot of physical healings, and all of those pictured the spiritual healing from sin that Jesus brings. They pictured what Jesus would ultimately do in healing the world. Psalm 103, 2 and 3, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. That's not just physical. It's comparing iniquities and diseases there. Sin is like a disease. And Jesus is the one who heals because he is the king. Jesus will one day heal the entire creation. Listen to how Romans 8 speaks of it. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. That groaning of the creation, that longing for healing, is embodied in probably the greatest Christmas hymn speaking of Jesus as the King. Joy to the world, Isaac Watts' hymn. We sing, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. All of the damage that sin has done, as far as the curse is found, that's all undone. It's all set to rights. It's all healed by Jesus, the true king. We're celebrating the healing that Jesus brings to us personally and to our world. So Jesus frees us from the curse of sin. Jesus is the divine word made flesh who brings us into the new creation. Jesus in his death on the cross wins the victory for us over Satan and sin and death. Jesus is the one who brings us peace and Jesus is the one who brings us healing. These are all part of what it means that Jesus is the king who arrives at Christmas. Lord, we pray as we consider these words and as we think on the Christmas story, 
that you would impress on our minds and our hearts what it means that Jesus truly is the King. Sometimes it's really easy to separate out the Christmas story. We kind of have this nostalgic idea and we, we, we think of the Christmas story and the baby in the manger and we disconnect it from what Jesus came to do. The great victories and the great accomplishments of hope and peace and healing and justice and salvation that he has brought. May we this year at Christmas remember truly what it means that this is the advent, the arrival, the royal arrival of the King. We pray this in the name of our King, Jesus. Amen.